What's up, Joe? What's up, everybody? Today on Sports 360, we're talking with Jay Fee, a partner in the Boston office of the prestigious law firm of Nelson Mullins. Jay is the chair of his firm's sports law group, and he joins us today to talk about the business side of sports, sponsorships, licensing agreements, promotional rights, endorsements, and other arrangements. Jay and his group serve an impressive lineup of clients, including professional sports franchises, colleges and universities, corporations, regional broadcast networks, along with a number of individual athletes and entertainers. Jay has a wealth of experience and knowledge, and he's about to drop some of it on us right now. So stay where you are. We're coming right back with Jay Fee on Sports 360. Today, I welcome to Sports 360, Jay Fee. Jay is a partner in the law firm of Nelson Mullins, where he is chair of the firm's sports law group, a group that is engaged in sponsorship, licensing, promotional rights, endorsements, and other sports business for a host of individual and institutional clients. Jay, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm great, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me today. Thanks for carving out some time. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to the conversation, Jay, um, because I've been in sports for a long time, but I'm a labor lawyer by training. And so I know just enough about sports and business to be dangerous, right? <laughs> so I'm glad to have someone as knowledgeable as you and as experienced as you are to come on to the show and talk to us about various aspects of the business side of sports, particularly sponsorships, endorsements, and all the other things that you do. So I really do appreciate the time. And in that vein, Jay, when, when we talk about, you know, sports sponsorships, endorsements, promotional rights, and those types of things, for someone like me, what exactly does that mean? What does it entail? Um, and can you um, give us a few examples uh, of what you and your group do at Nelson Mullins to help us understand that a little bit better? Uh, sure, Jeff, sure. Um, yeah, like you with a labor lawyer background, I started as a corporate transactional lawyer and did that for six years here in Boston and quite by accident got involved in the, in the sports industry in a I've worn a number of hats, but um, insofar as your question goes, um, we represent corporations and other business entities you know, who seek to partner with various sports properties and then leverage those relationships to achieve their business objectives. Um, the forms of those partnerships can be many. You know, for example, um, stadium and arena naming rights. Um, official marketing partnerships of a league or a team, consumer product licensing, uh, 
event titles and branding, such as uh, the title sponsorship of a PGA Tour event. Um, various uses of intellectual property, whether that be trademarks, copyrights, or patents. And then, from time to time, brand ambassadorships, whereby we would be representing a company seeking to retain an athlete or a celebrity, or we may represent from time to time the athlete um, insofar as his or her relationship with that company. Um, I also represent a number of uh, other businesses um, where I'm uh, helping them secure relationships on the other side of that equation. So I represent a global footwear business, uh, an athletic apparel company, as well as a major golf equipment manufacturer and brand. So the form of those partnerships and each one of those that I mentioned have individual aspects of them um, that are somewhat unique. You know, if you take, for example, um, the naming of a, um, of a stadium, um, why do companies spend so much money on multi-year long-term agreements um, for naming or branding a stadium, arena, or other venue? You know, really in today's world, it's about those companies primarily seeking those millennial population, um, the disposable income group um, that is so very important, so very important to a lot of um, uh, companies out there. Um, they see branding today of a, of a venue as a way to be where the eyeballs are, if you will. Um, you know, the viewerships uh, today, modern uh, modern viewership of television is down. Um, we're not watching appointment television or tuning in at 5 o'clock or 7 o'clock on a Saturday and watching a sitcom or uh, a TV drama. Those are all being taken uh, back by DVR and other things. But what people are still watching are live sports, live uh, action, live entertainment. And those activities are being hosted at a variety of venues across the United States, your stadiums, your arenas, and your concert venues. So to have your name associated with um, a stadium or an arena is a significant way and a very um, large and bold way, if you will, to place your brand and your company um, in line and in view of that um, usually desirable uh, demographic. And, you know, your, your comments raise a few questions for me. And I'll start here first. Let's stay with the stadium and arena uh, naming rights. Um, because I think about the deals uh, that you do, you know, the, in, the, in the various um, sponsorship and other categories that you mentioned. And one of the things I wanted to ask you was other than economics, what kinds of considerations come into play? And so, for example, with these stadium uh, deals, naming rights deals, I think about how, you know, the match needs to be good. I think, you know, I, I remember years ago, Jay, when 
I believe it was the Houston Astros. This before it was Minute Maid Park. I think it was Enron, right? I think it was. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then Enron went through the controversy there, and you know that the you know their name came off the stadium. Um, so clearly, you know, if if you are a, a team, the reputation and other aspects of the potential partner are important. But also, I think sometimes practical things like the actual name of the company. You know, um, I don't know if it's the Chicago White Sox, but one of them, right? Isn't it a guarantee rate stadium or something like that? Which yes, that's correct. Yeah, you know, it's it's you know, and sometimes that sort of gets ridiculed in the public, right? It could be a good deal, right, financially, but you know, it's one of those things where it just doesn't roll off the tongue. And so I just wonder, other than the economics, what kinds of considerations go into whether it's the naming rights deals or other deals? Uh, some things that perhaps most people wouldn't think are important, but as someone who's experienced as you are, you know that there are other elements of a deal that are important. Yeah. So staying on point with with um, stadium, you know, I have done a major NFL stadium deal, uh, naming rights. I represented the um, uh, global automotive company that was naming the stadium, and. There were, in these types of contracts, what's interesting, there are a multitude of parties at the table. You'll have the team ownership. You'll have the uh, league, the NFL in this case. You would have, um, um, they, the city may have uh, representatives there. The land could be leased from a local sports authority on which the stadium sits. Um, a host of uh, parties are there and each have their own particular concerns. For the community, in which a stadium lies, it's really important that that brand be a quality uh, brand, that um, that it be one that is looking for ways to bring the community to the stadium, to have the stadium become an attribute and a positive, positive uh, venue and a drawing card for that stadium or that county. Um, the team, from their perspective, they like the deals to be long-term, they like the brands to be extremely financially strong and and uh, stable, able to make um, payments time and time again, um, and they want to, as best as possible, avoid turnover of that name. Um, now, when you're representing a brand, you know some of the considerations are the sale of a company. The merger. I mean, you can go on uh, Wall Street Journal every day. There's a, a pharma company being bought by another, um, or a merger of automotive companies being talked about, or whatever it might be. There is nothing out there today that is too large that can't change. So part of my job is to make sure we build in flexibility for the brand, that the stadium itself be well maintained. Um, that it doesn't fall into disrepair, that the people operating that stadium are using it to the maximum possible uh, capacity, that they're out constantly looking for new events. You know, it's not just, you know, eight or nine football games in the course of a year. It's concerts. It's, um, you know, off-road um, uh, ATV, uh, big truck races, whatever it might be, motocross. Um, bull riding, you know, whatever can be put into a stadium is very good for that stadium sponsor. Um, and then, of course, if you're talking about an NFL stadium, 
the grand prize would be, does the community, does the city have the wherewithal to really attract uh, a Super Bowl? And that is a win-win for everybody associated with those types of transactions. Um, so hopefully that answers a little bit of your question. Um, you know, the other thing I'll say about sponsorships in general, Jeff, is that many times we're negotiating category exclusivity. Now, it's easy to get category exclusivity for a naming rights or of, of a venue um, or a stadium because you're the, um, you're the big ticket with paying the biggest check. Um, other sponsorships, when you get into areas such as financial services, healthcare, um, you have to be very careful about how you define the business of your client and make sure that the team or the league doesn't grant other sponsorship rights that infringe um, or cloud or confuse the public and the message that you're trying to send to your potential customers and fans out there as to what exactly your company does. So, you know, category exclusivity, very, very important. You know, you take banking, for example, you can have retail bank official partner, investment bank official partner, official credit card of the bank mm. or the, the team or league. You get my point. It go. It sure. can be uh, kind of sliced and diced. And, and my job when I'm on the brand side is to make sure I eliminate, I eliminate or minimize those types of um, activities, which certainly are driven by revenue needs of the league and the teams. But you know, nonetheless, we we want the benefit of our bargain. That's a really interesting point, Jay, because I can see where trying to create subcategories in, in, you know, for example, in banking or, in, or for, as you just talked about, could lead to some confusion or some competition that maybe your client, you know, feels like I'm paying not to have that. I want the exclusivity. But on that point, Jay, and I may be mistaken here, but going back to the arenas, I I seem to remember and maybe it was an overlap or maybe I just missed it or, or I'm just off the farm on this one, but American airlines arena, right? Mm-hmm. I, is there one in Miami and also one in Dallas? I, I, it seemed to me that there were two of them and it caused confusion for me. And maybe it was that, you know, American airlines moved from one to the other in terms of the naming rights, but it would, you know, you said, you know, the naming rights for stadium is an easier one to get the exclusivity, and I can see and understand that. But um, you certainly would not want to have two stadiums with, especially in the same sport, uh, with the same name, would you? Well, I mean, I think it's happened before, Jeff. I don't know. I can't remember the American Alley specifically, but, you know, Mercedes-Benz um, was always associated with the Superdome down in New Orleans. And, of course, now they're... Uh, have their name on the new stadium in Atlanta. Mm. So, um, you know, whether a brand intentionally tries to do that, but that's two major venues. You know, when you're looking at venues, this somewhat goes without saying, but as technology and uh, engineering have advanced, you know, the stadiums who have the ability to um, provide a retractable roof, um are very, very valuable to to brands and sponsors. Because why? Because if you take a look at the Mercedes-Benz Dome in Atlanta, um, they'll be able to host a, a, you know, a Final Four someday in college basketball. 
Uh, so a lot of indoor events as well as as, as football. Um, but you know, it all depends on how companies want to spend their dollars. Um, you know, sometimes you have overlap and duplication. Sometimes a company will just have a great opportunity. You know, to name a stadium. I mean, obviously the biggest prize out there right now, and I don't believe I've seen it named, would be the new stadium in Los Angeles being built, and then there's another new stadium being built in Vegas. Mm -hmm. um, so both both currently are unnamed. Right. Well, Jay, one of the things that I, I, I've been really interested to get your opinion on um, is something that has been wildly successful um, in a very short period of time, and that is the NBA Jersey Patch Sponsorships. Um, yep. Limited program, it started as a pilot program right in 2017. Right. Early estimations were give or take $100 million a year. And, you know, I've seen reports that it's 50 to 60 or more million dollars uh, above that projection. Um, and so it really has uh, been successful for the NBA and its franchises. Uh, what's your take on the NBA jersey patch sponsorships? Um, yeah, I, you know, I had a privilege of representing a uh, a company that that secured one of these patches. Um, I won't go into who it was or what team, but as a result, I became very well versed with this initiative, um, and I think it. I think it is something that you have to look at for as down the road for other uh, other applicability to other sports. But the patch deal, you're right. I mean, I think it it did certainly start out as a three-year term for all these agreements, and um, the pricing varied. The pricing wasn't established across the board by the league. The league let its um, uh, individual um, owners and their sponsorship teams set the value based on marketplace and um, a host of different things but not be not you know be and don't be mistaken um the analytics and the exposure um data that the league provided that the league invested a lot of money in securing was distributed out to a number of the different teams so they could go out and create you know excellent um marketing proposals for potential partners um, you're right. I think financially it's been very successful. Um, the the range of prices in this in this area can can vary from you know something five to six to seven up to upwards of twenty uh, million. You know that's been certainly that's been reported in the press. Um, but you know what makes the patch deal unique is that. You know, other than the MLS, which has always had kit deals, which is their jersey patch, um, the NBA is the first of the of the major four leagues in North America to use this on game jerseys. Now we've seen patching and and branding on practice uniforms for a number of years in the NFL. Um, here up in Boston, for example, I believe Gillette um, has a patch on the Patriots um, uh, practice jerseys and a number of different. Um, NFL teams do that. Um, but the game jerseys were the first uh, in the NBA to have this patch. Um, what makes it pretty unique is even though you're doing a local marketing deal 
in the local team territory uh, for the patch. That patch travels on all uniforms, all variations of the of the uh, club's uniforms across all markets, you know, home and away. You know, further travels internationally, where the NBA is being followed um, in multiple countries around the world. So you're getting tremendous exposure, and you know, some studies have suggested that the actual visibility on camera of that patch, given its location and players going to the foul line and close-ups, et cetera, could be anywhere from, you know, 15 minutes and up uh, on average, given a game. Now, these patches are a great way for um, uh, organizations to get their brand out, and we've seen a variety of them. You know, some come from very established brands, uh, but interestingly enough, some have come from brands that you haven't heard about, um, which are more in e-commerce, like, um, um, you know, StubHub, which is the ticketing company, Rakuten with the uh, Warriors, um, you know, Bumble. Um, there's a number of different ones. And then you have more traditional ones, like Harley-Davidson, I think, is with the Bucks, and um, General Electric is here in Boston with the Celtics. So, you know, really a, a unique... Um, Program. Now, the programs with the patch is just not throwing a two-and-a-half-inch by two-and-a-half-inch uh, logo on the shirt. They're supported tremendously by um, other sponsorship and marketing um, assets that are secured during the course of that contract negotiation. But um, And I, I will point out, too, uh, the WNBA is doing a nice job in the patch area as well. Um, mm -hmm. And they're looking at that as an additional revenue stream for their for their teams as well. And, and Jay, you mentioned that on the on, on the game jerseys, mm -hmm. the NBA is the only um, sport among the four major North American team sports to 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 have the patch deals, um, and yet it's doing very well. And part of what I wrestle with is what is keeping the other leagues from following suit. You know, many times we see in industries this copycat mentality. And if there's anything that seems to be worth copying, it would seem to be these patch deals. Um, and one of the things, Jay, that I found to be really interesting concerning these patch deals is that about two-thirds of the companies that have signed on with NBA teams for the patch sponsorships are they're doing business with teams or the league for the first time. Right. And so that, right. I find that interesting. Right. So it's, it's an opportunity to go into new directions or whatever, but um, why do you think the other leagues, um, are, are they studying it? Are you hearing anything about any of the other leagues, perhaps following the NBA's lead here and also allowing for Jersey patch deals? I, I do think they're studying it. I think the NBA on a number of fronts is a, a very progressive, forward-thinking league um, currently under the leadership of Commissioner Silver. Uh, he was the first to talk about you know, legalized sports gambling as potentially acceptable in certain forms. But, um, you know, baseball, I guess, you know, some of these things, Jeff, and uh, putting our agent's hat on, you know, some of these things may be CBA required in terms of sign-off for uniform changes like this, uh, revenue sharing under the salary cap system. So it may not necessarily be a uniform 
um, a unilateral decision of the leagues. But, you know, rest assured, I, I can say with some certainty that you're going to see this in another league um, probably within the next two to three years. Um, I do know that there's one league already that is um, has a habit of trying to put carve-outs into large sponsorship deals whereby they're putting sponsors on notice that this may someday happen. And if that does happen, then that's a, a new asset that they may either offer to an existing sponsor or, as we talked about with category exclusivity, it may cross over into category uh, exclusivity as defined in a particular deal. So um, it, it is coming for sure, and I think it's going to be driven by um, by you know the constant need to drive revenues uh, in greater numbers. Now, I'm sure with the oncoming legalized gambling questions and things like that, and state by state approving those uh, pieces of gambling legislation, that there'll be a pressure from uh, sports books and other things to put branding on teams. You know, I given how conservative some of these leagues are, I don't think that'll happen. But I do think some uh, you're going to see it. Whether it's you know a, you know a league might decide to do a league-wide brand uh, branding on a uniform or on a helmet, um, as opposed to doing the the model that the NBA did, which is you know market by market. So, but it is it is fascinating um, to see how it's it's been well received, and it has interesting enough. Maybe it's because the inventory. Uh, traditional inventory, your digital and static signage, um, and other things um, that the traditional sponsors, the large brands, um, soft drinks, et cetera, have, have uh, secured all that inventory and really didn't know quite what to make of this type of um, new asset. Uh, and maybe that's why they didn't jump on it when they had the opportunity to. But it has been fun to see, and I'm sure, you know, with e-commerce and other new companies out there that are technology-driven, I'm sure the league is very happy to be opening new relationships with different kinds of companies. No question about it. I agree with that. And I also agree with what you said earlier, too, that I think some of these um, deals, if, if, uh, if other leagues do jump in, would be a subject of collective bargaining, arguably. Um, so, and I say that as a player advocate, of course, <laughs> you have to bargain right. with us over it. But, but here's the other part of it, though. You know, under the NBA deal, players are getting half of the uh, of the revenue, right? I mean, so they're sharing in the revenue. Um, so, I would think both leagues and players um, would want to, you know, see if they yeah. can strike a deal because there is a way to mutually benefit from them. So, well, you know, as you know, when, when you read a <laughs> I guess we're we're a few few of the people that like reading collective bargaining agreements, but when you read the definition of you know hockey related revenue in the NHL CBA or football related revenue, mm -hmm. there are a multitude of carve outs as to what goes into the revenue pie um, in each sport, and it is that pie that is divided and is split fifty fifty or forty seven fifty three, um, and that becomes your in effect your your portion of the salary cap across all the teams in that league. So um, I'm sure with a new revenue source of this magnitude down the road, the Players Association will want to make sure that 
there are no such carve-out opportunities for ownership and that funds will be shared um, when they're derived from, you know, game shirt branding or et cetera. Sure. No question about it. That, that That's probably a fight um, that will be had at some point. Um, now, Jay, you mentioned the NBA being one of the more progressive leagues, if not the most progressive league out there among the major four. And I would agree with that on, in, in a number of respects, whether it's because of gambling or even some of the views they take on social issues and things of that sort um, and how they support their players in, in the same um, but one of the things, Jay, recently that I saw that the NBA made a change in its um, international sponsorship opportunities, right? That they're now allowing teams to pursue these international sponsorship opportunities. And it seemed to generate a lot of excitement among the clubs that they now, and it's limited. I think it's two, they can, each team can do a maximum of two individual um international sponsorships but it seemed to be met with a lot of excitement by the clubs in the nba what's going on there why is that something that is such a big deal for the clubs well i think you know it goes back to when i had the opportunity to work on a one of the jersey patch deals you know um uh, my client was provided with a lot of data uh, in terms of the reach and the visibility and um, the exposure that these patches would have. And it's interesting. Um, and these numbers are out there in other sources, but I mean, you know, the NBA probably of all the sports is a truly um, international sport. And uh, the fan penetration numbers across the globe are, uh, for me, you know, impressive and staggering, really. Um, you look at mainland China, um, they count upwards of 170 million fans, uh, Brazil, 27 million, um, the USA, 90 million, and then Europe, roughly, say, 50 million. So, um, you know, the the fan penetration of the NBA globally is right up there with F1 racing, with World Cup soccer, a variety of different things. So, you know, as, as, as companies become more globalized um, and more inter, and economies become more interrelated, interdependent, um, you know, being associated with a great sport like NBA basketball is got to be attractive to not just great United States companies, but companies that are based all over the world. And um, so I, I'm sure they see this as a tremendous um, revenue opportunity. Um, it'll probably take a lot of getting used to, but I mean, there's certainly, we get a little parochial here in this country where it's, you know, our companies are reaching out elsewhere. Well, you know, there are companies outside the United States that want to reach this population, those mm-hmm. 90 million basketball fans. So, um, you know, what's to say they can't have that opportunity? So, answer your question, I think that's what's driving a lot of the uh, excitement. Mm. Now, Jay, I want to turn to what I'm going to call, and whether this is a precise term or not, but, you know, some of the emerging technologies out there, you know, the digital market, place you know we have augmented reality virtual reality social media um but when you when you think about how technology has changed you mentioned before about dvr right Mm -hmm. Uh, you're absolutely right you know my wife is you know she dvr is like everything (laughs) okay (laughs) right you know (laughs) 
And and there are times right where because she's DVRing so many things, I don't even know if that's a term DVRing, but anyway, you know what I mean. Yeah. That I'll be I'll watch T I'm watching TV in another room and it changes the channel because she has like four or five things <laughs> recording, right? So, you know, and I and you I gotta get another I'll, remote, my friend. You need another remote or something. Yeah. I don't know. I need something. I need something. But um, but you're right about that. You know, uh, so the technology is obviously having an effect on how we are, we being fans of the game and, and other consumers, how we're consuming content, right, including right. sports content. Sure. So what do you see out there in terms of the emerging technologies, in terms of opportunities, challenges? Um, and I know that's a broad question, Jay, but I'm just really curious as to how the world is evolving technologically, how that is affecting the sports sponsorship uh, and endorsement business. Yeah. And, and viewership, you know, and how people are consuming uh, sports content and live content. Yeah, I was. I, I was thinking about this line of questioning, Jeff, and I, I saw some data, some interesting data recently, just the other day, actually. It goes to kind of these, the numbers are really, for me, they were, you know, quite interesting. You know, this report said 51% of the world, approximately 3.8 billion people, were using the Internet in 2018. Mm. Um Advertising spending on the internet up 22% in 2018. Now a lot of that is going to the Googles and the Facebook of the, of the world, but others are are getting growing share of that. You know, Amazon, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. Um, the other thing that's staggering in the technology area for me that obviously sponsors are taking a really hard look at is the number of um, Interactive interactive gamers worldwide. Um, and this same report said that number of interactive gamers worldwide grew six percent to two point four billion. You know, people playing Fortnite and other such games. Hmm. And then the number of people watching those people play is growing rapidly. So. You know, I think I think the internet and the ability to, and the growth and the number of users and the improved technology and bandwidth and other abilities to to properly stream things without buffering in the old days or interruptions is really changing the way in which we consume talent, consume content rather, and the types of content that we're finding. Um, you know. What I just said affects a lot of the following. For example, I mean, sponsorships. If you've got that many people on the internet, whether it's through esports or content being driven on Google, Amazon, baseball games are now on uh, Amazon, I believe, um, and Facebook. So advertising dollars are going to go there. Sponsorships are going to go there. Um, a lot of talk, of course, in our industry about over-the-top streaming of live events. Um, the other thing that fascinates me with technology is the creation of niche content. Uh, niche content. So your ESPN Plus, for example. Now we have the ability with digital streamed content to, if 
if you're a lacrosse fan, if you're an NCAA swimming and diving fan, if you're um, into uh, you know tennis, um, crew, college baseball, whatever it might be, um, you have the ability to almost take that talent down on demand for appointment watching at, at your leisure um, because there's so much of that content out there. And technology is enabling us to, to do that, both to produce that content and to view it. Um, the data analytics, you know, um, this is an issue that all of the players associations are sure, sure dealing with. But, you know, tracking devices, the ability to determine, um, you know, the amount of separation between a wide, wide receiver and a defensive back, the historical matchups between player A and player B, um, you know, puck possession in hockey, I mean, the time in zone, I mean, all of these things are being tracked. Tremendous amounts of data are being generated. Um, I would submit to you that a lot of that data is going to find its way into the world of legalized sports gambling. Um, and it will be used and um, analyzed and dissected to create more and more information for people to set set odds and to uh, place bets. Um, and then the other thing with, with technology, with social media, Jeff, and is the whole situation involving um, um, the players themselves, the players in, in, in professional sports. I think technology has been, is now giving players a greater opportunity and more ways to go directly to fan bases. You know, historically, you, the players were the teams and the teams controlled so much of that. And now we're seeing players with huge social media followings, whether it be professional golfers or uh, team athletes, um, you know, out there posting video, out there showing behind-the-scenes life, um, out there, you know, creating content, music, whatever it might be. They're using technology to go directly to fan bases. And sponsors and other, you know, brands like that. If that player has a fit, a demographic, uh, which is which his social media profile reaches, that creates value for that player. Um, and it's a very cost-efficient way for, um, you know, companies to reach um, potential customers by and through athletes. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that in tech with as a as a great use of technology. Um, you know, the challenges in all of that is become it is that I guess with the freedom of expression through a multitude of platforms, it just becomes harder to control. And you know, brands like to control messaging and they like to control how messages are delivered. Um, so, you know, we've seen multitude of times where players, celebrities, et cetera, have gotten involved in, in difficult situations because of statements sure. being made. So, sure. you know, that's kind of a balancing point that people have to be aware of. But I'm seeing more and more sophistication in the way players uh, and teams, for that matter, are leveraging and finding ways to monetize the ability to um, touch fan bases in, in new and different ways. And Jay, you hit on so many interesting points there. You know, uh, you, you talked about the internet and streaming, um, you know, 
streaming certainly opening up all types of opportunities um, for leagues and for their clubs. Uh, you talked about players and, and their social media platforms and, and the opportunities that, you know, that creates. Um, and then also the tracking of data. Um, and yeah, some of it could be the puck speed and ball speed and that kind of thing. But then there's also some of the wearable technology and, you know, where players associations and leagues aren't seeing eye to eye on a number of important issues regarding that type of data, particularly in terms of ownership, right? So there's all kinds of issues that are related here um, as the technology emerges and content is, is able to be created in new ways or delivered in new ways. Um, and of course, with the leagues and players all involved in trying to grow the game economically for their individual and collective benefits, um, create some opportunities, but also perhaps some challenges and perhaps some legal fights down the road. So a lot of interesting things uh, as it relates to technology and emerging technology and sports business. Um, I, would, I would agree. And I think, I think in many respects, uh, law and precedent and other situation, other, you know, we're catching up to the technology and we're trying to catch up. I'll give, you know, one that, you know, would keep me up at night would be, you know, the wearable technology question. Well, you know, whose data is being collected? Who owns that data? Mm -hmm. Absent a release from the player, I would submit the player owns that data. And what do you do with that data, even if they are permitted to collect it? What if it? What if that data were to be compiled in such a way that some expert concludes that player X has a health issue? Um, you get involved in health issues and, and conclusions about one's health, but projecting one's uh, capabilities, physical capabilities, you're in an awful slippery area. And um, that can affect livelihoods. There are a number of different things that come to come to mind there. So, you know, data is great. But yeah, there's no question. I mean, I, mean, I data, think there's, I'm sorry, Jay. No, I would just say that data is great. Um, data is powerful. And who has control of that data and how it is used is submit to you can be rather dangerous depending on what side of the table you're on totally agree totally agree and and so that's why i think you know that particular area um as you said i mean i think there's a lot of catch-up in terms of um you know understanding the legal ramifications of this information that's able to be collected who owns it you know you have other issues as you said um confidentiality, security, right? You don't want this information getting into the wrong hands. So it's all kinds of issues related to that. Um, but Jay, let's switch gears for a minute because in addition to your sports business work, and I'm sure we just scratched the surface of it and I would hope at some point you would come back again and we can talk about maybe some discrete issues that are out there or some additional issues on the business side. But in addition to your work there, you are also a certified agent um, in Major League Baseball and the National Hockey League, correct? Yeah, well, I, um, I, I just probably gave up my NHL certification um, back in 2016, but 
Okay. Because uh, I'm not recruiting NHL or NHL prospect players anymore uh, here at the law firm. Um, I am still uh, representing a big league pitcher, so I was a NHL certified agent for 24 years and hmm. MLB for probably the last seven years, I guess. So, but yeah, I've I've had a great run in 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 both areas. Yep. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I've worked in baseball for over 20 years now and had the opportunity a few years back to uh, do some work for the NHLPA in terms of grievance arbitration and salary arbitration. And yeah. one of the things I enjoyed was seeing and experiencing the different player culture, I'll call it, mm-hmm. that the players in baseball and the players in, in hockey they're different. I found them to be different, but it was refreshing for me after spending so many years in baseball and, and, and both players are great. So there's no disparaging right. comments being made here, but they were just different. You know, they're just, you know, different culture, you know, you have a lot of European players, for example, in hockey, of course. And, and, yep. you know, there's, there's a lot of diversity as well in baseball, but they, it was just different. And it was refreshing for me um, to, to have that opportunity as someone who spent, you said, over 20 years in hockey and, you know, seven years in baseball, how do you find the differences in terms of your the business side of it? I mean, yeah, you're negotiating contracts, but I would imagine that there is some differences there in terms of how each of the industries operate. What's been your experience? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it you know, I was thinking about, you know, similarities and differences in, in the two sports and you know, I have had a privilege to represent some amazing people, um, and uh, you know, I feel privileged to have been able to do so. You know, when you're an agent, you're also you know part of the Players Association because you derive your authority from your certification, and it is the Players Associations that empower agents by and through the authority the the associations get from their collective bargaining agreements. They're allowed to. Um, you know, pass that authority on uh, down to certified, qualified agents. So, you know, in terms of similarities, Jeff, I, I was thinking about, I mean, I, right now I think both have excellent leadership um, and both have a history of strong leadership. Um, you know, in both sports, you're, you're, you find yourself dealing as an agent with, with extremely young players, like high school level talent at age 18, um, same in baseball. And then you can also be representing um, the more mature, physically more mature, emotionally more mature college players when they're coming out. Um, you know, both associations do a really good job of kind of controlling the bar, I think, in terms of who can become an agent and, and what their qualifications are. Um, you know, I go back a long way in hockey, and I can remember hockey the days we didn't have a salary cap. Um, and in the course of my um, aging career in hockey, we lost, you know, two half seasons and a full season. A tremendous amount of value and web and salaries were lost due to um, very contentious, you know, lockouts, which is a regret, you know, in, in looking back at it. You know, I wish, and I know I know baseball's had a long history. Um, and I, I teach at some of my sports law class at the local law school here. You know, I know what the battles that baseball took on to to become the powerful union that they are now. But 
when you see the loss of value um, in the marketplace for or from the marketplace for people that are very have very short careers. You know, you think about sports athletes. You know, I would say, you know, a career could be over, you know, on the next shift, on the next inning, whatever it might be. Um, but in large part, you know, professional athletes, their career is over 33, 35, maybe 40 if they're fortunate. Uh, what other careers out there are like that? So it's really important that, you know, whether you're a baseball player or a hockey player, you got to get good sound advice and counsel every step along the way to maximize that window of opportunity. Um, but, you know, and to your point, the other similarity would be that both international talent pools, right? I mean, that you know, we have a tremendous amount of people from um, different countries in baseball um, and, and tremendous amount of European countries in hockey. I've, I've traveled to all the cold places on the planet, uh, Jeff, in my <laughs> earlier career looking for hockey players. And my wife used to ask me why I wasn't in baseball sooner because it seemed like they had warmer places to go. <laughs> So, uh, but um, yeah, on the mechanics of the deals, you know, I think in the in the, in the salary capped environment, um, you know, your challenge as an agent is to, you know, know your know your players' abilities and what they can bring to that particular ball club that you're talking to at the moment, and then fit the value proposition into the salary cap slot that might be available. I mean, with full salary disclosure and comparables in the marketplace. You as an agent pretty much know your client's value and you know where a particular team has wherewithal or doesn't have wherewithal to find that player uh, a roster spot. So, you know, I see that as kind of similar. I think in, in, in terms of salary arbitrations, as you know, they probably couldn't be more different, you know, in terms of um, yeah. when I was doing salary arbitrations, there was one arbitrator and it was um, – uh, they were very subjective. I mean, I can't tell you the stories about sitting in arbitrations and sitting across from a general manager and just impugn the integrity, the character, the courage of my client, all subjective baloney uh, in an effort to drive his salary down. Um, and then, you know, oh, okay, by the way, he did score 25 goals last year. Um, you know, so we had that. But it, as you know, these arbitrations are like preparing for, you know, court litigation. Right, and then you know, on the baseball side, and and you're so well versed in this this area, much more so than I. You know, I found it refreshing because in baseball it eliminates the subjectivity and the character views and opinions that are, are so subjective and baseless, oftentimes and self-serving. And in baseball, we have, you know, um, two parties submitting their bid, if you will, driving to a midpoint and most of the time, you know, reaching a, a negotiated settlement. I think I think the process drives most um, salary differences or differences of opinion to a, a, a negotiated conclusion there. Um, the other thing about baseball is I found extremely data-driven, um, you know, the numbers are what the numbers are and how you use them and how you tell the story with your analytics and your um, – statistical measures really makes the difference in those types of um, baseball arbitrations. So, you know, that's a, you know, that's kind of my take on both of them. You know, I would say that in terms of collective bargaining agreements, you know, they have a 
big impact on the business side of sports too. And mm-hmm. now that I represent a lot of companies, you know, you know, you'd be surprised how many companies don't really think about the collective bargaining agreement. And I say, well, this collective bargaining agreement on such and such a sport is going to be up in two years, and you're about to enter into a six-year contract. Do you know, understand the implications of that? You know, in terms of a work stoppage or you know some other interrupting interruption. So we need to raise uh, awareness of the collective bargaining agreement, what it does, when it ends, um, build in protections for work stoppages and things like that. Um, and then group licensing and how you use individual players. You know, every every sport's a little different in that world. So, you know, I think um, it's been fun to be on in two sports in my career, and it's certainly, um, you know, what I learned in each sport I continue to use, you know, on a daily basis. And Jay, you 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 mentioned something at the tail end there that I was specifically going to ask you, but now you 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 addressed it somewhat, and that was, you know, when you look at you know these two sports, baseball and hockey, and you know football and basketball, all these sports have had, you know, it's you know their fair share of work stoppages, whether lockouts or strikes, some more than others, obviously. But I was wondering about the the very thing you touched on, and 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 that is, you know, having worked in these two sports where we have had some disruptions in gameplay, um, do you take that into account on the business side? And you just answered that, and you said yes, you do. But it sounds it sounds as if that is part of client education because some clients may not be aware of that type of a connection that, yeah, the collective bargaining agreement is expiring in two years, three years, whatever the case may be. Right. And the rhetoric has not been too positive. You know what I mean? And I I could imagine that could make it tough for business, particularly among those uh, clients or potential clients who maybe are more aware of the intersection between the business side and, and the labor relations side. Yeah, no question. And, you know, I think with the significant, you know, seven, eight-figure annual payouts that you're looking at with some of these sponsorships, you know, when a league goes dark, in my view, there's not much value left um, to whatever elements of the sponsorship agreement you're dealing with. Um, And it goes right down to fan bases. I mean, the teams or leagues will say, well, we're still going to be putting out content and highlights from past games, and we're going to be reaching our fans. You know, from having gone through lockouts in the NHL and being from Boston uh, here, I can tell you when when hockey wasn't playing games, no one felt good about the sport. And that has economic impacts, not just to the players and the agents and the owners, but to all of the businesses that are associated with a sport. You know, the bars, the vendors, the taxi cabs, the Uber drivers now. I mean, who knows? I mean, so, you know, I think it's incumbent upon me to, you know, use my industry knowledge and and bring that to sponsors so that they're aware of the possibilities of what a short or protracted work stoppage might mean to this relationship. Um you know, it's not something that teams or leagues, it's not an enjoyable conversation when I when I bring that up. Um, but you know, it's all part of the negotiation. Um, but it goes, it goes down to even a finer point, you know, you know, there's been a lot of talk about pace of play in baseball, Jeff, you know, a sport you're Mm -hmm. very familiar with. And 
When you think about pace of play in shorter games, I think it's in, in many respects it's going to be good at how it's going to be implemented is another story that the union will work out with the league, I'm sure. But for a sponsor, you know, I had one ask me, oh, wait a minute, that means they'll be in the ballpark for a shorter period of time. They won't see my signage as much. And if I run television commercials, there'll be fewer television commercials. So, you know, you can see how it has a trickle-down effect mm-hmm. to the sponsors and stuff. And, you know, it's it's just kind of interesting how there is a uh, a nexus between, you know, the labor negotiations and, and the collective bargaining agreement and um, the economics of a particular sport and all the different stakeholders that have a have a part of those dollars. Sure. And, and, and Jay, I think, among other things, that's what makes, for me anyway, working in sports so interesting, that you have all of these kind of moving parts and, um, and you know, having to navigate them presents challenges that I think as a lawyer, as both of us are, um, you know, it, it really makes it enjoyable, um, you know, to work in, in the industry. So, um, no doubt about that. But, uh, but Jay, listen, man, um, I really, really enjoyed this conversation today. And I, and, you know, I know we just scratched the surface and there's a lot more uh, that we can talk about uh, concerning your work in sports business, but I do appreciate you taking some time and sharing some of your insights and knowledge with us. And I look forward to you coming back uh, again to talk about, you know, maybe some other aspects that we didn't get a chance to hit on today, but I do thank you for taking, you know, some time out of your busy day to, to join us here on the show. Well, Jeff, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I know I've been uh, uh, looking forward to it. I have nothing but tremendous respect for you and your reputation in the industry. So um love to come back when you want me. You'll just have to deal with my um, hard-charging agent uh, to book again. But uh, <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, I appreciate the kind right. comments, Jay, and, um, and I do appreciate the time. And look forward to catching up with you. And as we're sitting here, we're about a week or so. Uh, from the 4th of July, and I hope you and your family have a great holiday. Same to you, Jeff. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks, Dave.